Today on Gears' Quorn Streams, Marie Jocelyn and Naomi Hefcott join me in discussing professional GMing. Greetings, adventurers! My name is Vivek Santayana, and you're listening to the fifth and final episode of Gears' Quorn Streams podcast. Tabletop roleplaying has undoubtedly surged in popularity. As this hobby grows and more people are keen on trying it out, there are professional GMs out there who run bespoke games for clients. Now, if you're like me, this phenomenon of being a paid GM seems like a very new concept. So for this episode, I interviewed two professional GMs, Marie Jocelyn and Naomi Hefcott, who've been doing this for varying lengths of time. And we talked about this gig of being a paid GM, what challenges people face in doing this, and what it means to commercialize your hobby in this fashion. I hope you find this discussion as illuminating as I did. Now, most of us who watch online streams or listen to actual play podcasts are familiar with streams or shows as ways of commercializing how we play games. But the idea of being a professional GM for hire is probably a novel phenomenon for some of us. So I asked my guests to explain what GMing professionally means for them and how they got into it. As a background, I started uh, working in the innovation sector. So I was animating creative weekly workshops, I was animating seminars for businesses, and using a lot of design-seeking-type techniques to do that. That was Marie Jocelyn, founder of Thunderdice, an Edinburgh-based company that organizes custom role-playing events. She's also a project manager in the arts sector. I used to do in my um, professional job a lot of storytelling, a bit from a product standpoint. So it was all to make a customer seem real in the mind of different departments. Uh, how to spark innovation and make people from very different backgrounds um, create something new by collaborating. And then next to that, I would run those massive uh, year-long games with friends where I would build props and have like sliding terrains. I love them making like mini potion workshops. And I would just go really wild on this. And after a while, I thought, okay, I've got those two passions side by side, um, which in a sense rely a little bit on the same storytelling and collaboration abilities. So why not try to combine the two? And that's basically how I decided to, to start Thunder Dice and try to um, promote some more um, a new way of gaming um, through this. GMing professionally uh, compared to GMing with friends is quite different uh, in a lot of ways. So it's different in terms of structure of the game. So where you're gaming with friends, basically you you take a couple of hours to prepare your game. Um, You have more or less a vision of what you want the group to achieve, and then the group can decide to throw that out of the window. But um, when you're offering a professional game, what you want to build is a story arc that people can decide or not to follow, but in a very time-limited way. So for example, I have 90 minutes or three-hour games. There must be a beginning, a crux, and an end. And if you move forward with the, uh, with the PCs and your clients, in a sense, they must be able to go through all those emotional states before, before reaching a satisfying conclusion. And that means a couple of things. So the first one is that um, you need to time precisely um, your workshops. Uh, so you avoid the fact that, for example, uh, uh, you build one shot and it spreads across three sessions. I know that was my, my biggest and steepest learning curve for me, um, being able to see, okay, I've built this whole 
possible, possible, sorry. But I need to be able to have this whole range to edit out a couple of elements. So that's a bit for the structure of the game. The other part of um, GMing professionally is um, having a type of storytelling that is fitting people that are not your friend. So you don't DM for yourself now, you DM for others. And that means that um, your storytelling must fit the style of adventure that they like. You must really tailor your story to who you are uh, working with. So for example, I always, um, I always have a small questionnaire that I send gamers um, before even starting around what would be the preferred length of your adventure? Um, what type of adventures do you like? Do you like something very action heavy? Do you like something a lot more investigative? A, a little bit of, the, of both? Um, what type of genre would you like? Uh, would you like horror? Would you like a murder mystery type element? Um, but it's making sure that it's what the game they have is actually what they have in mind. Another big thing is what is the degree of RP, uh, so role playing, that um, people want in a game? Is that something that you can go really easily with your friends? But that's something that you need to discover on the spot with players. And you don't have um, multiple AM games to be able to fit that correctly. Professional GMing is slightly different from just running a classic game. In the sense that you must be consistent. And um, you are in between the realm of running an adventure for your friend and running a written story. So an adventure for your friends, um, it's, so you have this loose guideline and that is them completely free to do something. A story is just you writing it. Um, but you must reach this middle ground uh, in a sense where um, I personally, for example, write all my key descriptions. So if my character are entering an inn, I've written a whole paragraph where I describe what the inn looks like. If my character meets an NPC, um, I have a whole range of pre-prepared NPC that I know the voice for, what they look like, um, any key plot element and information that they can share. And that way I can really make sure that even if I'm not in an on day where I'm on top of my DMing game, I can offer the same quality level throughout the game. It's about being your best GM self. So it's about what your GMing on your best day looks like and then pushing that for pay, essentially, um, which is good in a lot of ways. It can be difficult on some days, but any job is difficult. Um, and then just sort of like, I find it mostly viewing it as using your expertise and experience from what you've done non-professionally to help people have fun and introduce people to tabletop. That was Naomi Hefcott, a drama teacher and GM who runs bespoke D&D sessions with an agency in London. Her voice would be familiar to people in Edinburgh's role-playing scene as someone who was involved with Adventures Wanted during their Fringe show in previous years as both player or stage manager. I got into it by approaching an agency who put a call out for people who weren't men, essentially. <laughs> um, that was the big uh, thing that they wanted to change because they wanted to diversify their GM roster. And then it sort of like went from there. So I have a regular campaign and I do some one shots as well. The main thing I've done is I've employed more formal procedures around 
my expectations at the table um so i have a rule that in my sort of worlds that i build i don't have like homophobia racism sexism transphobia things like that i don't bring those in i think there's more interesting things to explore than those um so it's about bringing that more informally i get that it's about bringing that in more formally um and yeah, I have much more formal procedures around safety tools as well. So I use um, the RPG consent checklist that went around a little while ago and I use pause cards as well. Um, and I make sure that I remind at the start of each session, these are things that are in place. When I'm saying like, here are my expectations, I can, when it's with my friends, I'm like, just so you know, like I don't do these things. But when I'm putting out a GM, when I'm sending a contract or when I'm discussing with people I'm being paid by i'm like right if you're paying for me this is what you're getting and i think that's important as well you are selling a product as cold as that sounds at the end of the day um and you have to be aware of like what your boundaries are um because otherwise it's not going to be fun for anyone you don't want to be sat at a table with someone completely triggered by something that you've put in because you didn't know that that was a trigger for them and things like that so it's about your safety and everyone else's safety and i think it's easier because you can come at it from a point of none of us know each other beforehand and that tends to be the case with groups um unless it's like a one shot for a birthday or something which i have done when it's my ongoing campaigns normally these people don't know each other so i can be like look we don't know each other we don't know what each other's been through i need these things in order to be able to make sure that everyone's having fun from what both naomi and marie said there is a significant difference in the way you gm professionally compared to when you gm for your friends professionally you are gming first and foremost for your clients enjoyment and you need to make sure that the service that you provide is consistent for everyone at the table. This often requires more formal procedures around consent and safety. But there is a further dimension to how this changes the relationship between the GM and players, and how this affects the story and the dynamics of the table. This is what Naomi and Marie had to say about this. So the difference in the relationship between GM and player in a sort of professional environment, it starts off a little bit more um, distant, I guess. Um, just because you know you are being employed by them but everyone I've been to for a one shot has been super friendly I've mostly done one shots for um, kids birthdays that's been my main professional thing um, because I'm a teacher and I have the right checks for all of that so I, I love and I love running D&D for kids it's like the best thing in the world um, but when it's a group of adults I think we all have that understanding of expectation um, so we know what the transaction is but that also means because we have that understanding, every player in my current campaign group is starting to become a friend because we get on really well, we're playing together, we're doing a lot of cool stuff. And because I set clear boundaries in the beginning, we now have um, trust between each other because we know what the limits are, which has meant we can build these friendships and start talking to each other. Obviously, it's not going to be the same friendships as we've always had, but as like you would have obviously it's not going to be the same friendships as you would have like outside of that setting but they are there um and because there's that trust there once you set those clear expectations i feel really comfortable giving all my campaign players as much agency as they need so i have done it where i've completely changed the trajectory of a one shot or a or this campaign that i'm running professionally right now because of a player action i don't want to take player agency away we're all we're all telling that story together and i view that at my personal tables and i think part of the success that i have as a professional gm is the fact that i take that ethos 
to my professional tables as well because realistically and I know I'm in a very privileged position to be able to do this I can be very picky and choosy about my players um, and if I don't want them back I won't have them back and my agency allows me to do that as well Um, I've never been in that situation before with professional GMing like every player I've come across has been a wonderful person Um, but I know that I am protected in that way and again great privilege to be able to do so because I have a full-time job so if I don't want to run a session I don't have to run a session Um, but it is it does mean that these relationships that we form are very strong and that I'm allowed to give player agency because I know if a player does something that I'm not okay with or is outside of my boundaries I can be like hang on you agreed when we started this that these were things that we were going to avoid or we weren't going to do. I like to make sure that I do um, a checklist with my client so not only in terms of adventure style but also of uh, consent uh, again, generally good practice, but um, do you have anything, any phobia, any topic I should um, avoid? Um, who will be my player in terms of age? And how can I adjust that a little bit? Um, for example, um, I've been gaming with very young children. So sometimes family come in and they have children age five, six. Uh, how do you make a story fun for that uh, type of age? How do you make the story fun for both the child and the parents on the site? That's something that needs a lot of preparation before um, the game itself. Um, there is also, in terms of um, relationship at the table, I like to implement a red and a green system. So I always put on my gaming table when I do um, RL games, um, or on the side of roll 20, um, a little cross box so people can just type it um, and or touch it. Uh, I like that, to ask them if they're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, for example, put a dice on it, or am I, do I need to step back a little bit so they're feeling, a little, um, they're feeling more comfortable with the game and it's still a lot of fun for them. Another element I think, um, that is important in this relationship between GM and players when the players are clients is um, who do you handle um, character agency? So uh, again, we have this limited time um, where there needs to have a beginning, a climax and an end. Um, An open world is great with friends. a little bit of um, not real wording because I don't like this wor- word, but um, working through clear option where you give people choices, but they know what is the generic direction, also helps keep um, a really active pace throughout a session, and uh, avoid having the um, s- slog moment that you can sometimes find um, in your home games. These dynamics between players and GMs that Naomi and Marie described bring with them some interesting challenges to anyone wanting to GM professionally. So I asked them what advice or suggestions they would have about the challenges to professional GMing for anyone wanting to start out. Now, they had some remarkably different perspectives on the matter, as would be evident from our discussion. I'm going to start from a safety standpoint because that's sort of where we're going. Um, Because as a femme presenting 
queer person who's running tabletop obviously i'm speaking from that point of view i'm also white so like i can only talk from my perspective but these are what i found very useful i've gone to houses where i have run games now i have an agency who check in with me as i'm arriving they know when i'm supposed to arrive i'm saying to them i expect the session to last four hours check in with me so if i get there at two check in with me at six so but just having someone know where you are if you're freelancing have a friend know exactly where you are and have designated check-in times that you are expecting to be able to respond at. Um, And if you have to say, I'm really sorry, I've just got to take this text message really, really quickly. It's just a safety thing. Parents, clients, they will understand. Other than that, I suggest running in public spaces. I run at a really lovely pub called The Coach and Horses in Leighton, who I'm very specifically shouting out because they're struggling at the minute with the pandemic going on. So if you are in East London, as soon as you are back please go and visit that pub they're lovely people and they're a freehold and they're amazing um but in terms of running professionally two big things really is one just try and make it as fun for yourself as it is for everyone at the table because the golden rule of rpgs is that if the person who's running it is not having fun it's very difficult for everyone else to have fun and that's easy to remember in your home games it's more difficult to remember in your professional games and it's the same thing that we get told in teaching like the kids can tell if you're not enjoying a lesson and you're not enjoying teaching it if you enjoy teaching a lesson the kids want to learn from you that's that's the best thing you can do and that's the reviews i get a lot on facebook and stuff where people are like oh it's a really fun session oh we really enjoyed it and it was really welcoming that's the environment you want to make And also just like, don't let it overtake your personal games. I'm a real big believer that side hustle culture is a bit toxic and (laughs) can be really bad for our mental well-being in terms of, oh, well, everyone has a side hustle, so I need one. And it was something I was very aware of when I signed up to professional GM because the main reason I did was I, um, it's sort of like a big five-year plan goal for me to be able to do. It's a little bit of extra income. It's a little bit of fun and it's nice to do but it's not necessarily taking away from my personal interest in the hobby. So my personal games take precedence. Again, this is a point of place of privilege, but my, my personal games do take priority over my professional games. If they're already booked in, I won't cancel a private game for a professional game. And that's a boundary I've drawn. Not everyone can draw that boundary. And I totally understand that. But if you're looking at this as a side hustle, I put in quote marks because again, I, I hate, the idea that we all need to have one we don't um make sure it stays that way unless you want it to become your full-time job and also um i don't use minis or maps i use theater of the mind only with professional gming unless i'm working with kids then i will have like maps but they're drawn on a white clean map very outliney type thing because theater of the mind a gives you more room for a rule of cool which is again fun for everyone but also like minis cost a lot of money and take up a lot of space and are difficult to carry and Unless you're running out of your house, which I don't recommend you do as a professional GM, by the way, I recommend you find a pub that is willing to accommodate you or a restaurant or a cafe somewhere that's going to be helpful and accessible to the people you're catering to and public as well. There's no reason to have these maps with like um, mist machines coming through them and things like that. Like there's, there's, it's not necessary. As, again, as long as everyone's having fun and getting to take part in a story, that's what they care mostly about. 
The first part, I think, is when you're thinking about GMing professionally, being a full-time professional GM just doing a fantasy adventure, it is highly unlikely that you will be able to financially make it work. So the question is, what can you do as a professional GM to make sure that you offer more than just a game? So what I'm what I'm pushing and what, what is making it work for me is that um, I'm offering, for example, potion workshops as well. I'm offering um, historical visits as part of a game. Um, I'm offering an experience more than just a game. So I have a massive bank of props and terrains and I have partnership with bars and locations. So it's not just a couple of people around the table. It's uh, a couple of people around the table in a castle that I've rented, for example. I can offer them partnership with artists so they can draw their characters as well. Um, and I can offer them partners with uh, even um, mini makers that can make them mini and paint them for them. So when they go into a game, it's just, it's not simply me telling a story. It's them living through a whole experience. Another thing that we are launching at the moment, so it's soon to be out, you've got the exclusivity by the uh, It's in partnership with uh, Tour et de Tour de Dambourg. We're going to launch um, history games. So how to teach people history um, through the medium of a TTRPG. Uh, the first model we'll be launching is a Jacobite-based one. So launch uh, the history of the Jacobite, and more specifically, um, when Bonnie Prince Charlie lost Culloden. Between our guests, we have a whole range of advice there. From making sure that you yourself are safe and having fun, to providing value-added extras for your clients. Now, as with GMing, everyone has their own style and preference, like whether or not they'd like to use maps or minis or terrain, or just stick with the theater of the mind. But regardless of the different perspectives as to how they GM, both Naomi and Marie have one thing in common. They're trying to get paid for doing something that they love. So as we concluded this interview, I asked them to reflect on the bigger picture of what they felt about monetizing their hobby. I, I see it as expanding my hobby, in a sense. So I'm a storyteller and I, I love telling a story, whatever the medium. Uh, but by monetizing my offer, in a sense, I can um, expand the experience. So just with my friends, I wouldn't be able to um, rent a castle. I wouldn't be able to um, rent a ruin for a camping trip uh, where I would be gaming basically throughout the camping trip. I wouldn't be able to um, buy simply this quantity of props and terrains. So it's it's enabled. It's enabling me to um, increase, in a sense, the scope of fun that I can have as uh, as a DM. So yes, it's it's still a lot of fun. It's still uh, pushing forward um, a style of gaming that I that I love a lot, and it's expanding the scope of um, events that I can live through as um, a DM as well. And then, of course, I can take everything that I've learned and that I've created for um, this professional games and um, 
use it to aid test games, but also just have fun with my friends in my home games. I still have this long running campaign uh, at the moment with friends that we've been gaming for like a year, year and a half, I think, that I'm running every week, um, no matter how many paid games I do on the site. Now, just so we're clear, Naomi and I have a very critical conversation about what she calls side hustle culture. This is not to say that there is anything wrong with having a side hustle. Rather, what we are critical of are the economic, financial and social pressures people face, like poor pay, insecure employment, inflated rent or cost of living, that often compel them to have these side hustles in the first place. It's definitely a mix because obviously I have a very stable career, which I'm very safe in, but also I ended up coming to this because my career is also historically underpaid. So a little bit of extra income every month is welcome. (laughs) Side hustle culture is toxic, I stand by that, but for some people it's necessary and I'm not going to blame those people. They're victims of like you said the social and political and economic climate that we're in and we you and i could go on a rant for ages about the problems with that but we're now, not- as another fellow member of a trade union in education i agree with naomi that we can go on a massive rant about this but we won't and we'll stay on topic with that but we're not going to <laughs> um that's what i mean by like toxic side hustle culture if you've got a side hustle and you're proud of it like go for it you, you rock you're great i'm sorry that it can't be your full-time job if you enjoy it in terms of like taking away from my enjoyment, I think the main thing I really love doing is bringing new people into tabletop. It's how I got started with adventurers. It's why I got employed by them when I was working with them. Um, it's what Roldark's mission is, is bringing new people into the hobby. And I, that's what I was doing personally anyway. And now I feel like my reach is wider because I'm doing it in a more professional capacity because people are much more likely to commit to someone who's professionally doing it. So um, I will be sort of like um, advertising myself outside of the agency going forward. And I know that that's going to pick up some stuff because um, I'm coming at it from a queer perspective, which is missing in some tabletop spaces. And that means that people will feel safe coming to me. It comes with a lot of like stuff. And I'm not saying that, you know, every cishet guys who is a dm is horrible because they're not like i there are loads of people who are wonderful who fall into that category but you know as someone who is not a cishet guy i was gate kept out of this hobby by cishet guys for a really long time and i really want to be someone who brings people into it and um makes it accessible for people and just makes it fun it's supposed to be a fun thing and it's one of the most fun things i do with my time And part of me going into that professionally has been, this is why I want to do it. And that's what you've got to hold on to. You hear people talk about all the time, like, well, remember why you got into this. And if you're getting into professional GM to make a quick 50 quid every week, it's not quick. Um, And also um, the prices are still really low because people don't necessarily value this skill set as much as they should yet. Um, if you're coming into it because you want to run more games and you want to run with different types of people, that's a really good motivator. If you're doing this because you want to introduce new people, that's a really good motivator. But just remember why you want to do it. Don't come in thinking that you're going to become the next Matt Mercer and Marisha Ray who've bought their house off of D&D. You know, that's so rare and so unlikely. You need to come at it from a perspective of, is my life better with this professional gig in it? Um, again, 
very much a place of privilege but with this kind of thing again if you have the time to do this to supplement your income that's great but do just really think about like why you want it done because if the moment you lose passion for it your players won't have fun anymore you won't have fun anymore and it'll become a slog and you don't want that you don't want to turn something you love and your hobby into something that's really horrible well that's it for this episode and indeed this run of the corn streams podcast the music on this episode was wholesome and deliberate thought by kevin mcleod details and attribution in the description along with links to the things we talked about on the episode you can get in touch with us about the podcast via email at gears.committee at gmail.com or via the gears facebook page discord or at gears edinburgh on twitter my name is vivek santayana i am at vivek santayana on twitter it has been an absolute delight producing and presenting this over the past 10 weeks you could probably tell the production quality got better each episode and i'm grateful that i got to interview some fantastic people many of whom i look up to in this industry on such a wide range of topics my thanks to the gears committee for its support in letting me do this and to all of our listeners who tuned in i'd like to extend a personal thanks to all of my guests over this series tiggs cunningham chloe mashiter alan jackson david donachy robin higgins dr megan connell jonathan mendoza jenny lester katherine wilson Marie Jocelyn and Naomi Hefcott. I could not have done this without their generosity and enthusiasm. And in particular, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge what has been a recurring theme on this podcast and something that has been very personal to me. Many of the people I interviewed have had experiences of being gatekept out of this hobby, and to be honest, so have I. So to all these guests and to many others who may have had similar experiences, I'd like to say that we hear you and we would like to help make your voices heard. My guests and I discussed these topics openly, and I'm grateful for the candor and conviction with which they spoke about gatekeeping. We at Gears are committed to making this hobby as inclusive as possible for all of our members, and that means a commitment to making our spaces free from harassment and discrimination. We in particular want to listen to and spotlight the voices of people from marginalized backgrounds, as we believe their insights and experiences are vital to making our community a better place. So as we draw this run of corn streams to a close, I'd like to leave you all with this ambition, as well as my heartfelt gratitude to my guests and our listeners for being such wonderful friends that we made along the way. Mm-hmm.